Hey everyone, it's Alec, here to remind you to check the trigger warnings in the description of today's episode. And should you need a transcript, you can find that along with other goodies in the description down below. Have a safe listen. Mythale presents Circe's Episode 19, 2235. After months of doing this, you should think that I'd be used to it by now, but nope. This still seems pointless and excessively boring. But Kyra's up my ass about doing these, so here I am. I picked up a session from Cairo's discarded section, or rather the box on my desk Cairo shoves sessions into when he doesn't quite fancy reading them. It seems the session I have picked up is case file 5856431-06 by Jonathan Kimley. The session was written down on the 23rd of January 2007. It is recorded on the 15th of February 2023 by Elias Emanuel Short, therapist in training at Sunshine Valley Mental Institution. My mom used to tell me that I had a terrible sense of direction, or as we say in my homeland of Sweden, dåligt lokalsinne. I am from a little town in the middle of Sweden. Even if I told you where specifically, it wouldn't matter much to you, and I wouldn't even be able to point it out on a map. Easy to say that my grades in geography class were nothing to scream hooray over. Normally, it wouldn't have mattered much, since I didn't venture out on my own that frequently. I am a rather codependent person, you might say. When I was a kid, I would depend on my parents, and once I somehow got myself a partner, they were responsible for me not getting lost in some random netto. I met my partner at my office job. They had just moved to Denmark from Greece for some reason. They decided to ask me, of all people, in whatever broken English they could muster, where they would be able to find their desk. I felt almost bad about being as hopeless as them, but despite the language barrier and my terrible sense of direction, we managed to find out that their desk wasn't going to be so far away from my own. I quickly learned that their name was Dion. And as if that wasn't the icing on the cake, I instantly knew I had a crush on them. But enough introduction. I doubt this holds any true value to any of you, so I'll cut to the part I need to get off my chest. I am happy I got a chance to write this experience down. I doubt I would be able to discuss it even if I were to try. Writing it all down feels less personal and maybe it will help convince me that what I did wasn't half as bad as it seems. As I mentioned, Dion was usually my savior when I had to leave the house. It gave me a sense of security that there was always someone that would be able to lead me in the right direction. 
Unfortunately, Dion had come down with the flu, just as I had a job interview at a place I had never visited before. They did offer to still shepherd me around Stockholm if that's what I needed, but I insisted they rest up. I had a long journey ahead of me, and they were in no state to even leave the bed. I picked up my things in good time, deciding to catch the early train since I feared I wouldn't be able to find my connecting bus on time if I didn't have a little extra time on my hands. Dion blew me a kiss on the way out the door and screamed a hoarse, Good luck! from their snuggle pile on the couch. I didn't exactly feel confident leaving without Dion, but I had my phone on me and they would only be a call away should I need their assistance. It was better this way. I had to spread my wings eventually and it seemed that I just had to be forced into it. I made my train and even managed to catch an earlier bus than expected, which meant I had arrived in my destination about an hour in advance. I'd rather be early than late, but walking in there an hour before my interview might have seemed a tad too pretentious. I scanned the area and noticed a nice cafe nearby, which would place me about a five minute walk away from the building. I turned around and found a nice spot inside one of the corner booths. I messaged Dion just to assure them that I had made it here alright. That's when something odd happened, and also where things started to get a little… weird. As I sat in my booth, the last thing I remember before my life would change forever was a faint smell of something unfamiliar. It wasn't anything like the food or beverages you would expect in a little corner cafe. No, it was sharp and almost tangy. It made me crinkle my nose trying to find the source of the smell. I blinked slowly and when I opened my eyes again, I wasn't in the cafe anymore. I didn't recognize my surroundings and I feared the worst. Had I been knocked out and taken hostage? As I looked around me, the theory was disproven. I found myself walking down an almost empty street, the pavement only being lit up by the spare lights from a power-saving street lamp. My hands felt sore when I moved them. Looking down, I was met by the sight of my own bruised knuckles. I think I panicked. What else could I have done? I had somehow managed to forget what had happened to me. There was no signs connecting me to any certain events. All I could gather from looking at myself was that I had possibly gotten into a fight and, fortunately, left without any major injuries. I looked at my phone. The clock read 22.35. There was 17 missed calls from my partner, and even more unread texts. I didn't have the words to explain to them what had happened, or rather, that I didn't know what had happened. Whether I made it to the interview or not, I wasn't sure. At one in the night, I finally managed to drag my tired body inside our shared apartment, before falling asleep on the first surface I fell onto. I was awoken by my partner in a panic about where I had been and what the hell I'd been up to. That's when it dawned on me that it wasn't just my knuckles that had been bruised. It seemed I had beaten someone half to death judging by the blood of my clothes. I still wonder how I managed to make it home without anyone stopping me. I confessed to Dion. They didn't say a word when I had finished. They just picked up their phone and left for another room to make a call to.
someone. You have an appointment with a therapist on the 16th. I'll drive you there. That's the last thing they said to me that day, before they isolated themselves in our bedroom. I wish that was where our story ended, but unfortunately, there was more to come. I first noticed the odd smell again a few weeks later as I was going for a walk around my old workplace. I sucked in my tracks and looked around me. And just like that, the world turned black. Not like when you pass out. No, I hadn't passed out. I was in the exact same spot. The only difference was that it was no longer daytime and there was a warm liquid running down my face. I checked my phone again. 22.35. Exactly the same as last time. I checked my own reflection in the cell phone camera. To my horror, I discovered that the warm liquid was blood. There were no wounds to be found. To my discomfort, I came to the realization that it wasn't my own. I refused to put this on Dion. They already struggled greatly since the last time I came home in such a condition. So I chose to keep it a secret. I washed my hands and face in the nearby pond. And since the blood had already gotten onto my clothes, I jumped in without hesitation. I watched the blood bleed into the water around me, the cold water softly bouncing against my face. It was oddly refreshing to lie back in the murky dark water, letting my body be limp. I let out a sigh. How I wish the water could have taken me right then and there, dragging me into the soft embrace. Maybe I knew what I'd done back then but I don't think I'll ever be able to face the actions that occurred when I wasn't around to see it. Could you blame a man who didn't even remember committing a crime? I lied to Dion and told them I'd caught up with some friends I met on a walk. I must have apologized a thousand times for not informing them of my plans like we agreed. Eventually, they forgave me. They reminded me that a text would be appreciated next time, and if I could avoid falling into a pond again, that would be great. I almost cried when I awoke on a beach after days of false security, staring into the darkness of a starry night. I knew what the liquid that ran down my face was, so I walked towards the water without even checking the clock or caring to take my phone out of my pocket. I just continued until my body was submerged in water. The cold waves welcomed me back into its embrace. I knew exactly what the clock had struck when I woke up, and I wasn't going to face that one more time. I just wept into the cold chill of the ocean. The blackouts became more frequent. I tried to lie my way out of more arguments with Dion, but... When I arrived home past midnight after what must have been my tenth episode, no one was waiting for me. Not in the living room, nor in our bedroom. I could almost hear the silence that stretched out before me. I preferred the relentless cold of the ocean over the silence that rang in my ears. Water dripped onto my carpets, and I didn't bother looking down to watch the remnants of blood soak into it. I just wanted to sleep. So I did. A loud banging woke me up. My head felt groggy and my windows had gotten foggy from my still wet clothes that draped over my skin. 
I dragged my body to the door, hoping it was the yawn that had come to give me another chance or even just to yell at me. When I swung the door open, the cocking of a gun took me by surprise. Jonathan Kimley, you're under arrest for multiple accounts of manslaughter. Nothing like a gun in the face to wake you up in the morning, huh? I... I didn't want to scream. I really didn't want to scream. But again, someone did just cock their gun straight at my face. I didn't fight back. I was put in handcuffs and the rest was all a legal mess. There were trials, psychiatrists, and lawyers. I ended up with an insanity plea, which landed me in the unit of the criminally insane. I haven't heard from Dion since I ended up in here, and I doubt I ever will. My sentence was life without chance of parole. The only good my insanity plea has done for me is that there's no chance of the media reaching me here. I get to spend the rest of my eternity here, alone. I think what's worse is what they told me about the murders I'd committed. Fifteen accounts of manslaughter. I had killed fifteen people, and I didn't remember any of them. I feel like a monster, but I can't even remember the heinous acts I have committed. First time I learned any details of the murders was in the courtroom when they showed me video evidence. The youngest victim was an 18-year-old boy. I had kicked him off his motorcycle and proceeded to beat the boy bloody with only the use of my fists. He had 50 different breaks on a variety of bones in his body. He passed away before the ambulance could get there. It had taken them long to connect me to the crimes, since I hadn't followed a pattern like serial killers tend to do. I didn't have any recognizable pattern or method in my crime. I took lives like it was a game. I can't look at my hands the same after hearing a mother sob into a handkerchief as she recalled how I had strangled her daughter to death wearing a crude clown mask. I wish I could make them understand that I never meant to hurt anyone. That the man in the videos wasn't me, but I am a stone-cold murderer to the world around me. I bet Dion had seen me on the news. I am never going to see them again, and that's the biggest punishment of them all. I know that sounds insensitive of the families of my victims, but I had no recollection of any of them. How can I feel bad for people I can't even recall? Well, part of that isn't entirely true. There is something I remember from my victims, but it only haunts me in my darkest hours, when my brain is too loud to let me rest. See, that's when the screaming starts. Blood-curdling screams. I want him to stop. I wish I didn't have to hear their terrified voices that they begged me to stop. They wanted to live, and I, I know, I know they did. My life has no higher value than theirs, yet I am alive, and I will never be able to outlive what I had done, nor the loss that followed when I lost my beloved Dion. I did a bit of digging into some of the murders committed by Jonathan Kimley. It led me down a bit of a dark rabbit hole, which I doubt I will be able to forget anytime soon. I even managed to find a written account describing what has been found on video evidence. The next segment is quoted directly from the courtroom where the trial took place. 
Jonathan Kimley broke into the fast food restaurant after closing, as seen on video evidence 5C. The cameras showing both the parking lot and entrance, as well as four different cameras inside the establishment. We can thus follow his movement from when he first made his way towards the establishment at 21.06, just six minutes after closing hours. Mr. Kim Lee is seen breaking a window, which alarmed 23-year-old Henry Simonson, who was closing the shop that evening. Mr. Kim Lee managed to grab a knife and start leaping towards the defendless Henry. After multiple attempts of escape, Mr. Kim Lee manages to catch him off guard, slashing his arm open. Mr. Simonson gets into a struggle with Mr. Kim Lee, who overpowers the younger man with ease. I suggest the jury pays close attention to the next part. Mr. Kimley has overpowered Mr. Simonson, holding him against the floor where he is no way of escaping. It would be easy for Mr. Kimley to knock out Mr. Simonson or even kill him, but he opts for none of those options. Mr. Simonson is dragged off the floor in a chokehold. He puts up a fight to escape Mr. Kimley's grasp, which would have been obvious on the corpse if it hadn't been for the actions that pursued hereafter. Mr. Kimley forces first Mr. Simonson's leg inside the still-sizzling deep fryer, then lowering his body slowly into the hot oil. When zooming in on Mr. Kimley's face, we can even see that he appears to be laughing at the pain he is causing to Mr. Simonson. Mr. Simonson's body was found by a co-worker, Elena Burke. She had been sent to check why the store still hadn't been locked up. That's when she came upon Henry Simonson being cooked alive. Jonathan Kimley committed one of the most gruesome acts of sadism I have ever witnessed. The segment gives only a vague idea of the crimes committed by Jonathan Kimley. I only managed to uncover a short segment from the testimony given by Henry's co-worker, Ms. Burke. She unfortunately witnessed the last minute of Henry's life, but was unable to put a stop to the action. She was left with only the ability to call the cops and watch the horrors unfold. Here is what I found. I have never heard a scream as agonizing as the one that followed when his body was forced into the oil. I could smell the burnt skin even before I entered the store. Mr. Kimley had burned Henry's arms and hands and legs. I will never forget the sound that followed when he forced Henry's face down into the deep fryer. When I close my eyes at night, I can still hear the sizzling sound of the frying meat and the muffled screams which took too long to end. He tortured Henry for his own amusement, and I hope he wrought for what he did. There is nothing more I can add to Jonathan Kimley's case, as he is far beyond my qualifications. I'll have Cairo add a segment about his diagnosis, and further details that might be important to keep in mind when interacting with Jonathan Kimley. All right, I uh, got your message. Well, what's up? I found another case from the criminally insane ward, and I need you to give it a listen and add the final diagnosis, or perhaps other stuff I may have missed. Ooh, uh, which patient did you get? Jonathan Kimley. Ah, that Swedish serial killer? I heard about him on the news back when he was apprehended. Claimed to have no memory of any of his crimes. Very spooky. His sessions gave me the heebie-jeebies, honestly. <laughs> heebie-jeebies? 
Not so fit for the criminally insane unit, huh? I had enough just go in there to contact Frank Magison. This guy sounds like even more of a mouthful. You should be an expert on that. Pardon? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Do you think he could be the one? Who? Jonathan? I don't know. I've played around with the thought, but I'm scared it'll just be another leap in the wrong direction. Something about what happens to them just doesn't seem right. Mm. Great minds think alike. Tell you what, how about I send a request down to the criminally insane unit and get us a communication device so that we can have a little chat with Frank. If anyone out there will have any idea of what's going on, he's probably the one. I will get that request sent through by the end of the day. Thank you, Cairo. Don't sweat it. Let's just keep our heads low for now. No need to raise suspicion. We have to be stealthy. <gasps> like ninjas. I will just ignore that last part, but you're right. Uh, mostly, at least. Time to get back to work. Remember, Elias... Like a ninja. Circeus is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Today's episode featured Alexander Bautner as Elias Short, Henry Johannesson as Cairo Timor. It was audio edited by Henry Johannesson and El Sadi. Manuscript edited by Rita Bautner and Jay Jacobson. And written by Alexander F. Bautner. Like what we do? Tell your friends and loved ones about our show, or support us on our Ko-fi by buying art, or donating whatever you feel comfortable with. Want to get to know us? You could follow us on social media, or join our public Discord server. All the links are down below. Thank you for listening. <laughs>